5, stanzas 1 through 4. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Most merciful God and Father, we rejoice to gather together in the house of the Lord to receive your word and to be strengthened in our faith by the body and blood of our Savior. Give peace to your holy church on earth and prosper the preaching of the gospel that many from all tribes and nations may enter through her gates to the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. In our congregation at prayer uh, these first few weeks, there's, there's lots of very deep sadness and tragedy uh, in the biblical narratives where David continues to be pursued by King Saul, who desires to destroy him. The good news is how the grace and mercy of God that David received as a man after God's own heart uh, causes him not to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, 
not because um, Saul didn't deserve it, uh, but because of the office that Saul had held. So uh, more of those stories in the great drama of David fleeing from Saul and refusing to uh, raise a hand against him continues this week. And we move into the third and the fourth commandments. And so that bridges the first table of the law, the first three commandments, love for God, with the second table of the law, the fourth through the tenth commandments, love for the neighbor. In all of the commandments explanations, you have Luther emphasizing what he established under the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, namely that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So in each of the explanations to the commandments that follow, they rest upon that first commandment foundation of trust and reliance upon the Lord with the words we should fear and love God. Under the third commandment, we are not to despise preaching in God's word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it, for God's word is the source of all wisdom and truth. So this week's Bible verse is Psalm 111, verse 10, in the congregation at prayer and printed for you on the board. Let us speak this together. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. The fear of the Lord continues a theme in the scriptures that we've talked a little bit about last week. And that is that faith is more than intellectual knowledge that faith is a living trust and reliance upon the Lord, which also has the attribute or characteristic of godly fear, reverence, deep respect. So perhaps the best way to understand it is how we respect an elder because of who they are, their office, and so forth, we might say we even have a holy fear of them, not that we think they're going to strike us down, but because of who they are, because of what they've done, we would never think of backtalk. We would never think of disrespecting them. So this is an aspect also of faith, or an attribute of faith. Faith is belief, faith is trust. But to fear God to love him, this ardent affection for him, devotion to him, and holy fear of him are all aspects of faith. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this wisdom is the wisdom, the understanding, the perspective that only comes from God. One of the things I've said often is that I have learned maybe most of a profound and deep nature 
not from theologians as much as from catechumens, and particularly the young catechumen, who in faith has received the Lord's word and by a miracle of God's grace expressed the wisdom of the cross, uh, the wisdom of God's mercy, the wisdom of what the world calls foolishness. But the child or the young Christian is able to express this in a profound way. But it begins with the faith, the holy fear, love and trust in the Lord that receives his word. So you can see how this is why this verse uh, is also connected, not simply generally to the commandments, but to the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day, we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Now, this particular section is what flows from faith and the wisdom of the Lord. In other words, while it is very true that the old Adam, the natural man subject to sin, actually hates God's law, his commandments, fights against God's word, the new man of faith, created in Christ Jesus by the word and spirit of God, loves the commandments. That's why you saw this throughout the praying of Psalm 119, for example, I love your law, I love your testimonies, I seek them with all my heart. That's the confession, not of the sinful flesh, but of the new nature that recognizes that God's word, his commands and promises and laws and so forth are the food and drink and the delight of the Christian. So this doing of his commandments, which includes such things that we don't usually think of, like living the repentant life, confessing our sin, fleeing to the Lord for help, those are also part of the commandments of the Lord. They flow from the fear of the Lord and the wisdom that comes from God's word. And then when we live in the sphere of the Lord, and he grants us his wisdom and the delight to do his commandments, then living according to God's word by faith in him praises the Lord. So uh, some people might think that to praise the Lord is simply to utter the words, praise God, praise God, praise the Lord. But Whenever we're doing, in faith, what God calls us to do, that very life that is lived is praise to the Lord, which endures forever. Okay? Let's speak it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Any Questions or comments on that? All right, let's go to the third commandment. What is the third commandment? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. The first table of the law to review first commandment, 
the triune God and our Lord is saying, trust me. Second commandment about rightly using God's name, call upon me in every trouble. So we who trust him under the first commandment, pray to him, praise him, and give thanks at all times. Now the third commandment, listen to me, hear me. So the hearing of the Lord is what creates faith by which we, second commandment, call upon the Lord. So there's a wonderful circle in those first three commandments. Trust comes from the word. Out of faith in the word we pray, and so on and so forth. Second table of law, the first of them is the fourth commandment. There is a hierarchy to the law. Just as our relationship to God trumps and takes priority over our relationships with our fellow man, uh, so it is also the foundation of those. In the second table of the law, there is also then a hierarchy to the commandments. All right, what is the fourth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. So in the second table of the law, think about God protecting his good gifts with the law. Here, the office of father and mother and God's authority on earth to give life and to govern through father and mother and the earthly authorities. He wishes to protect that. Okay. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, in the fourth commandment, you teach us that our parents are your gifts to us. Through them, you gave us life, and through them, you care for us and provide us with all that we need. Thank you for our father and mother. Forgive them when they sin and strengthen them with your grace to be faithful parents. Forgive us for every sin of disobedience, disrespect, and dishonor shown to our parents and all those in authority over us. By your grace, help us truly to honor our parents, especially when they fail, and to always serve and obey, love and cherish them, according to your word, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Sorry about the typo there. Let us pray again. Heavenly Father, in the third commandment, you teach us that your word makes our lives and the day of worship holy. Your word creates repentance and faith in Christ in our hearts. Your word gives us true help, comfort, peace, and strength. Your word brings Jesus to us with all the blessings of his salvation Thank you for the rest and peace your word gives. For Jesus' sake, forgive us for despising, preaching, and your word. Grant us to hold your word sacred and to gladly hear and learn it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, and that uh, leads us then, that third commandment and that prayer nicely into um, our continuing study of the Old Testament survey narratives with 2 Kings chapter 22, 2 Kings chapter 22. We heard about Manasseh and the um, wickedness of his reign in terms of the things that he did. It stands out uh, above all the kings of Judah, and there were a lot of bad ones, but 
the length of his reign and the things that he did in idol worship, child sacrifice, uh, tyrannical uh, reigning, uh, the promotion of lascivious behavior. Uh, it's, it, uh, it's remarkable. In contrast to that, Josiah is like the complete opposite. So we will begin at verse 1 of chapter 22, 2 Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Uh, you're asking yourself the question, how is it possible for an eight-year-old to be able to do anything as a king? Well, I would submit to you a couple of things. Number one, someone, and it certainly wasn't Manasseh, but someone catechized him in the Lord's word. And out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have ordained strength and praise. Goes back to the comment I said before, sometimes by the grace of God, it is children who know better than even the adults the wisdom of God. Uh, also in conjunction with this, Luther says in the Schmalkald Articles, thank God a seven-year-old child knows what the church is, sheep who hear the voice of the shepherd. Josiah's eight, he'd been hearing the voice of the shepherd. And look at some of the things that he ends up doing. Verse two, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. So David is the paradigm of the man of faith. Not the man who had no sin, but who walked by contrition and repentance. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Think about Jesus' words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or Jesus' words, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way of life and salvation. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. So that would mean he's 26 years old because it's his 18th year of reign. That the king sent Shiphon, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. So Paul, here is uh, an example of what I was talking to you about bef before uh, Bible class. Offerings, he was asking about offering at the door, and is this a novel precedent? But actually, it's the older precedent because at the door of the house of the Lord, the gates where the people came in, that's where the boxes were for the offering. So Jesus' uh, story about the widow's mite is an example. You know, she put in all she had, but it was not in a collection that took place in the divine service of the Old Testament church. There was no such collection that was then brought forward. Let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord, 
Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord, doing the work to repair the damages of the house, to carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Now what you hear next is a startling example of trust. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. What a generous uh, thing to say about those entrusted with the care of the funds and its distribution to the workers and craftsmen who were repairing the temple. But such was the faith of Josiah, who gave the benefit of the doubt to those who had been called and given responsibility that they would actually carry it out faithfully. It is a sad thing if you live your entire life like Jim Ferking does, you know, with suspicion of everyone. <laughs> He's the most paranoid man I don't know. No, that's not true. Right? Karen, maybe yes, but not, not <laughs> Okay, then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe. Now, here is a key moment in all of Old Testament history. The Torah, which is sometimes translated law, as we've said so often in the past, but includes both the commandments and the promises of God, indeed, the entire narrative of uh, the Old Testament period from creation through the uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob narratives, the bondage in Egypt, and so that entire narrative up to the time of Joshua, where he takes over for Moses. The Torah includes all of that, includes the commandments of God as well as the promises of God. It was foundational for them when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life that I mentioned a moment ago. He is keying in on the Torah. He is saying he is the fulfillment of the Torah. So if you lose the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, you are losing that word of God which creates faith and anticipation and hope for the coming Messiah as the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and so forth. So it really, without the Torah, Israel as a church is robbed of her foundation. And going back, if some of you heard the Issues interview this week on the divine service, it is like the catechism being set aside. So Israel engaged in all manner of, quote, contemporary worship, which was accommodation of the pagan religions and nations around them into the worship of Israel. That's why they had profane abominations in the temple courtyard and, and so forth. Uh, there before the altar of the Lord, it was a syncretistic commingling of these things. Why did this happen? Because they took the catechism, or they took the Torah, and they set it aside. It is impossible to follow faithfully and to worship faithfully in the Old Testament church if you're living as the Torah prescribed, because the Torah had in it all of the details of how they were to worship. 
from the vestments of the priest to the appointments of the tabernacle, temple, the holy place, the most holy place, and what prayers they were to pray, how they were to live by confession of sins and absolution and so forth. So the loss of the Torah, as unbelievable as that sounds, means that the whole thing was set aside. It would sort of be like 30 years from now, when I'm, I don't think I'll still be here 30 years from now, because that would make me, well, maybe I, I could be 90, <laughs> 60 years from now. Uh, so then I'd be 120. I don't think I'll be here then. You know, you come to peace and the catechism isn't being used any longer. Every church that I've seen that engages in contemporary worship and then full-blown contemporary worship has, corresponding to it, a disregard and pushing further and further away the faith of the little catechism. As I said on issues this past week, if there is a church engaged in full-blown contemporary worship that has a vigorous program of catechesis that uses the small catechism foundationally, I'd like to see it because I have yet to see one. The two go hand in hand because the doctrine goes hand in hand. There's a Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. Orandi is prayer, so it would refer to such things as the liturgy, the law of prayer, lex law, the law of prayer or how we pray or how we worship determines lex credende, the law of faith or what we believe. So how you worship, the hymns you use, the liturgy that you use has an impact directly on the faith of the heart that you believe and confess. Okay, all right. So I repeat, verse 8 is one of the most important verses of the Old Testament history because of what was discovered. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. I like the indefinite article there. Like, he's got, I, have, I found this book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. It was an act of remorse, deep contrition for the sake of all Judah which had departed from the word of the Lord. Now you might ask, how could he have been catechized without the book of the law? Well, the role of... Uh, Oral tradition was very significant in the Old Testament. Unlike today, where people have Bibles by great numbers in their homes, which they don't read, 
is a relatively recent development from the invention of the printing press just before Luther appears on the scene. Prior to that, if you wanted to hear the Bible read, you couldn't go to your coffee table and crack open uh, the Bible. The Bible were books in scrolls and on parchments. What we call the Bible, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, were written on, on scrolls, or there was another uh, form of it too by the time you get into the New Testament era. But you didn't have them in your homes. You didn't go down to the bookstore and buy any number of Bibles that you wanted. They didn't, you had to go to hear it read in synagogue or in temple. So what did you have when in Deuteronomy 6 it says these words which I command you, which is referring to the entirety of the Torah, not just the Ten Commandments or the law, shall be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. So the practice of heads of households telling the great stories of the faith was something that was to take place and did to greater and lesser degrees throughout Old Testament history. Think about Noah didn't have a Bible. Abraham didn't have a Bible. Isaac didn't have a Bible. Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob did not have a Bible. None of the Bible was written with the exception of maybe the prophet Job, who was likely a contemporary of, of Abraham. But none of the rest of it was written. It's not until Moses that the book of the law is written. So when I talk about oral tradition, it in no way is to diminish the authority of God's word or the inscripturated word, not at all. It's rather to do the opposite, that those who heard the stories and the promises of God's word, of the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and so forth, were sustained in their faith and expectation of the Messiah by those promises. Now, what the inscripturated word then does is it codifies and gives a standard so that as time progresses, it becomes an important corrective to the oral tradition. It's why you needed to go to the temple to hear it so you got the story straight, you got the story right. But then Mark could go home and at Sabbath, he could review the stories with his children. And since he didn't have Twitter, Facebook, internet, television, radio, there was nothing else to do, so you might as well tell the stories, uh, the great stories of the faith. Now I jest, but not completely. The competition we have for in media today has robbed us of the primacy of the narrative of the faith. They didn't have the same influences back then, although there were other influences from the nations around them and the jealousy of wanting to be like them and have kings like them. We still have the same peer pressure today, except now it floods into your home. I would suggest to you 
that less time on the daily, nightly news and more time with the congregation at prayer and the Lutheran prayer book would serve you far better than listening to the propaganda that is on the television and in the media. But I digress, though not very far. All right, so Josiah's faith had been sustained by oral tradition. When he hears the book of the law read, it's not entirely foreign to him on the one hand, but it absolutely cuts him to the heart because he realizes how far from the word of God they had fallen. Susan. This becomes a significant point. I've often said in the meditations on the Psalter, as we've gone through that, that knowing the stories of the Torah, and particularly the exodus out of Egypt and so forth, enables you to understand better what the Psalms are talking about. There's lots of references to creation there. There's lots of references to Noah and the flood and how God works through water and wind and rain. We ought to pay attention to that today, all you uh, climate change uh, devotees. Uh, so the more that they knew the Torah, the more understanding the Psalter was. But Susan is quite correct. The liturgy uh, was, while compromised in so many ways, a present, and just like in the Middle Ages, the liturgy was the only place you could find the gospel. And then the Psalter was at least being prayed to some degree publicly in the divine service. The Psalms of Ascent, which we've just been through in the 60-day uh, psalm table, were among those psalms that were used in public worship in the daily prayers. Philip? Sure. All right, so then uh, what happens? Um, uh, uh, I, sorry, I lost my place. So uh, verse, verse uh, 12, sorry. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Machiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah. So he asks for intercessory prayer in light of the discovery of the Torah and what he knows to be a drastic departure uh, from what the Torah had indicated they should be about. So concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us. Now, how did he know that? He knew that because the Torah says you depart from the worship of Yahweh and you follow after other gods, you break the covenant, 
My wrath will come against you. And so Josiah gives the reason. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now, obedience in the Old Testament is the hearing obedience. In other words, there is no obedience apart from the hearing of faith. They didn't obey because they stopped believing. Where there was believing, there was faithfulness and obedience to the commands. You follow? Just like what we were talking about with the verse for the week. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Some, um, some what's the word? Um, some posit the idea that the wardrobe that she kept was the wardrobe of the priestly garments and so forth. It's interesting, a woman, whenever in, don't take this the wrong way, okay? Whenever a woman is put in a position to be spokesman for the Lord instead of a man, it is an indication of how far men have fallen in the abdication of their responsibilities, okay? So you have Deborah during the period of the judges, for example, Hulda here. Kathy? So is it basically just the Old Testament that you hear of the prophetess serves? Uh, there's none in the New Testament. No, however, there are godly deaconess type yes, people yes. like Priscilla and so forth yes. that work in tandem with their yeah. husbands and so forth. Uh, and I should say at this point, please again, let us emphasize and think primarily of Judah as church rather than nation, and Josiah more in terms of bishop, overseer of the church's doctrine and life, rather than civil king. Okay? Which is why the vestments of bishops uh, down through the centuries have often looked like kingly vestments. Okay? So, um, I don't, uh, whether we're talking about President Trump, for example, or President Biden, for example, um, the goal of the kingdom of God is not a Missouri Synod Lutheran president as if the kingdom of God is equated with the United States of America. That is the civil realm, it is the left-hand kingdom. Now, we have interplay and interaction with that left-hand kingdom, to, to be sure. But um, in the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament nation of Judah was the Old Testament church. And that's very important for us to maintain, lest we try to make 
of a external earthly kingdom today, the church. The kingdom of God has, earth, has tangible, visible things associated with it. The preaching of the gospel, what we're doing today, the administration of the sacraments. Those are external earthly things that create and sustain the kingdom of God in the heart, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit and faith. Okay? It enables us then, where we believe in Christ and out of that love our fellow man, to engage in the civil realm. But our nation, uh, Christians or serious Christians, are not only influenced by, on the one hand, American evangelicalism, where your Jerry Falwell moral majority uh, uh, influences kind of equate kingdom of God with what's happening in the civil realm. But you also had it in Romanism with the papacy that often uh, found itself commanding armies and doing all kinds of stuff like that uh, and invading the civil realm. Uh, I, I wish the present uh, pope would mind his own business uh, when it comes to the judgments that he places uh, over uh, civil affairs and stick to uh, churchly concerns. All right, so they, they go to, to Hulda, the prophetess, to inquire of her. Then she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. And she knows it's Josiah. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods. That they might provoke me to anger with all the words of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. So according to these verses, why? is the Lord's wrath going to come against them? They did not follow his commands. They broke covenant with him in idolatrous worship. Notice how central worship is here. They did not worship the Lord as he had commanded. Therefore, they broke covenant. There's far, far, far too much in our own day and age, the cavalier approach, that it doesn't matter what goes on in worship, that we should follow whatever personal taste we might have, even though according to the scriptures, our personal taste is governed by, so often, the appetites of the flesh. There are patterns, proper patterns and proper uh, structures to worship today, even as they're was in the Old Testament. All right. So in order to uh, demonstrate his faithfulness, he must visit the judgment that he in the Torah declared if they were breaking the covenant. Now, verse 18, however, speaks of still the mercy of the Lord. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner 
you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, the heart of Josiah, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought word to the king. Far enough for Josiah today. Sheree? So she gave him the law first and then the gospel. She gave him the law, that is true. She reinforced the law and she gave him the gospel. But why did Josiah make inquiry of the Lord? Why did he tear his robe? Because he walked in the way of his father David, which was contrition and faith. Okay? And so in the long-suffering patience of the Lord, there's not going to be a turning away of Nebuchadnezzar's judgment on Judah, no. But through the long-suffering patience of the Lord, there would be a comfort and a reestablishing of a remnant. Okay? So the remnant faithful would be preserved as the remnant faithful always is by the mercy of God. And many of those faithful then were carried off into captivity, even as Jerusalem was destroyed uh, and the temple destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Good. Other uh, questions or comments? Kent. Correct. Yep. God's bringing calamity for the benefit of his church. One of the, um, one of the episodes and sections of our St. Peter option that we're going to talk about is, is things like um, global climate change versus the curse of the fall. And Christians have lost sight of what the curse of the fall is. The last thing I would do would be to argue against climate change. But what I must do is argue and teach the curse of the fall. Because in the curse of the fall, famine, pestilence, drought, floods are all part of it. We act as if, if you follow the modern rhetoric, that the world was pristine until the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, and then everything went to hell in a handbasket. Look, there's been disease and plague and pestilence and famine and earthquake and hurricane and, and cyclones since man's fallen to sin. And what's the reason for it? God cursed the creation and subjected the, the creation to decay as an instrument through which we are to be called to repentance and seek help, not from the pagan goddess Mother Earth, but from the Lord who alone is the maker of the heaven and the earth. You follow? Okay. So, yeah, I mean, this is, that's a way in which, so we'll talk about that in one of our sessions, about being prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that is within us. I mean, have you seen the arrogance lately? Scientists now believe that 
they can keep people from dying. I mean, this has been on news feeds over the last couple of weeks. But we ought to follow the science. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who are the scientists that are making such assertions? Other comments or questions? Uh, Wally. What is the church? The church is the assembly of believers among whom the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered. It isn't necessary uh, for the unity of the church that all rites and ceremonies be identically alike in every place. But at the heart of the church is the congregation, the assembly of baptized Christians. So you can see them, but you can't see the faith in the heart. Yet they've been baptized, you can see baptism but you can't see the faith of the heart. They've been catechized. You can hear catechesis, but you don't see the faith in the heart. So the church, since the time of the apostles, uh, gathered steadfastly the baptized, Acts chapter 2, around the Lord's apostolic doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. That's where the church is found. So that's how we should look at it. Now, in the Old Testament, you're quite right in terms of genealogies and so forth, and where was the, the Davidic line and so forth. But um, even in the Old Testament, it is parallel to what the New Testament is. The congregation of the faithful gathered around the Lord's word and sacrament. That's what the temple was to be about and what the tabernacle was to be about before that. Okay, we will... Um, Tim, did you have a question? You had there. Okay, all right. We continue Josiah next week and see the reforms that he makes. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.